You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management archaeology and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Arc Podcast, episode 133 for March 28th, 2018. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we have some recordings from the annual meeting of the Society for California Archaeology held in San Diego in early March of 2018. So sit back and enjoy these interviews. This is Chris Webster for the with the Archaeology Podcast Network at the Society for California Archaeology meetings on the last day of the conference, and I'm here with Matthew Devone from Beta Analytic. Matthew, how's it going? Oh, pretty good. How's it going, Chris? Nice. Good, good. You're like three tables down from me. I've been looking at you the whole time. Um, tell tell our people, because this is going on the uh, CRM Archaeology Podcast, so a bunch of CRM archaeologists, what does... Beta Analytic do? I'm sure they've all heard of Beta Analytic. I mean, we all kind of have. Yeah, we're, we're kind of the uh, Kleenex synonymous <laughs> name of radiocarbon, you know, slash yeah, exactly. uh, uh, Beta Analytic. They, they, they both kind of interchangeably uh, get, go there. So yeah. we're a radiocarbon lab that's uh, been open since 1979. Nice. Uh, so kind of since the beginning. And we can trace... Uh, through Murray Tamers, we can trace uh, our lineage all the way back to, uh, God, I was going to who got the, uh, <laughs> Libby that got the, uh, oh, the, the, the Nobel uh, Prize for yeah. that, yeah. Yeah, yeah he, was, he was a student back in the day. Nice. Uh, so we do radiocarbon analysis and stable isotopes as well. So if you want to figure out plus or minus 30 when something happened in the last 42,000 years, we'll tell uh, yeah. you when that was. Excellent. And where are, does Beta Analytic have more than one lab across the country now? Or are you guys separate all over the place? Oh, no. We've uh, just got the the one lab in Miami. And in Miami. Then, yeah. Okay. But we're a, a global operation now. So For we've sure. got forwarding facilities that just overnight all the samples of the nice. world to Miami. Nice. Quick question from a... You know, I, I, again, I work in Sierra Archaeology in like the Great Basin, and we do a lot of tribal things, Native American concerns and stuff like that. Do you ever run into any issues, or do you have any, you know, standard literature responses that you say when somebody says, what about shipping this stuff outside of the region to you in Miami to work on? Do you ever deal with, have to deal with that? or? Is... Yeah, I would uh, We do. Uh, in... Some instances, tribal consultants will say that you can't do a destructive analysis, mm-hmm. and in other times, when we have a good working relationship with them, we can tell you that you know, three or four uh, grams <laughs> of you know, a femur mm-hmm. isn't that much, and we maybe couldn't analyze that, and so yeah. you get data plus you know the respectful consideration of bones. Excellent. Great. Well, where can people go to find out more about Beta Analytic on the web? You can go to radiocarbon.com. We grabbed that URL, so uh, we're, we're, we're pretty good. Do you have .org, .net, and .everything else? You know, I actually <laughs> haven't ch- checked that. Uh, so, yeah, radiocarbon.com will get you there. I would imagine .org and the rest of it. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. You know, with the new uh, the new like release classifications, they like radiocarbon.c14 or something, I wonder 
wonder if that exists. I don't know. <laughs> that would be I'd have to bring you on board as a consultant. You know, there you go. Come up with our web uh, presence. Nice. All right, so this is Matthew Duone with Beta Analytic, and as he said, go check out their website and uh, get your science done. Thanks, Thanks. Chris. <laughs> Who are you, and what do you do, and what's your organization? My name is Lynn Engelbert, and I am a detection dog handler. I work with the Institute yeah. for Canine Forensics, Neat. and our dogs are trained to find historical and prehistoric human remains. Ooh, wait, weren't you helping out down? Weren't you helping out? To look for um, Amelia Earhart? Or am I wrong? We were. We were. We went down last June and July 2017 Yeah. Uh, to look for Amelia Earhart's remains. Neat. And we can't talk about it yet because <gasps> uh, we have a contract and Ooh. it's... Uh, things, you know, have not... All of the testing and stuff like that has not been resolved yet. So until that comes out, we... we yeah. Don't talk about it. Interesting, but it's kind of like search dog, except you're doing not something so depressing as like you know going to a disaster. <laughs> I'm sorry, I misunderstood that one. Oh, it's almost like um you know you're like search like search dogs, except um you know you're not going to disaster, you're going through um you're going to um other things. That's absolutely true. That's yeah. exactly um our dogs are. Like FEMA has uh, human remains detection disasters or dogs, yeah. and my dog Piper is one of those. She is certified by FEMA, really, uh, also by the Institute for Canine Forensics, and we also meet the certification for the California Office of Emergency Services Type One um, wow. human remains detection dogs. Neat. Wait, is she has no. she done any kind of FEMA work? Uh, she has. She has. She's um, worked. Actually, we did not work with FEMA. We worked with the California Office of Emergency Services. Yeah. Uh, the Oso mudslides up in Washington. Wow. And that was a couple of years ago. And just this year, she worked the mudslides down in Santa Barbara. Ah. So she does that. We've not been on an official FEMA deployment yet. But uh, they're few and far between. Oh, thankfully. We're, yeah, th- absolutely, thankfully. Yeah. But we do a lot of work with the Institute for Canine Forensics. Interesting. So what have you done with the ICF that you can talk about? Oh, with the ICF, we, yeah. we do a lot of work with, with Native tribes. Ooh. We do a lot of work with, uh, you know, Caltrans. Yeah. We work with the Bureau of Land Management, uh, cultural resource management organizations. Uh, we just did a job up at Fort Ross. Oh, to do what? Yeah, to we were looking at the uh, old Russian cemetery up there, yeah. and a lot of times the, the markers disappear. So they were looking. Well, people either take them for oh. souvenirs, oh, or most so of gross. them were made of wood. Oh, so that you know, makes sense. over 150, 200 years, yeah. especially in the coastal yeah. atmosphere, uh, they just disintegrate. Yeah. You know, they rot and fall apart. And, oh, and, man. Um, you don't have to tell me about the ocean. So, yeah, <laughs> I grew right. up in an ocean town. That's why my convertible got rusty. Oh, there you go. Well, and exactly the same thing happens to the wooden markers. Yeah. And they didn't use stone or concrete at that yeah. particular point in time. Interesting. What would you be doing with the tribes? That's uh, a lot of times we go in if there's a construction project coming up or whatever, yeah. they will bring us in to work to determine if there are burials in the area before anything happens. Wow. Um, Interesting. So, God, so dogs can alert on, like, burrows that, that, that are that old? <laughs> it's really funny. We had a, uh, a floodplain project yeah. in central California yeah. that we were working, and they had already found some burials, yeah. and they were going to be moving them. Yeah. And our dogs went in, and the dogs were alerting on the bur- on burials. 
Yeah. And they were determined by the native monitors to be approximately 2,500 to 3,000 years old. So That's we cr- never, as human beings, we never lose our scent. Wow. If it's protected. Yeah. Now, if if the skeletal remains are on top of the ground, yeah, you've got the wind and the rain and the sun, yeah, and that um, that will really deteriorate the scent. Interesting. <laughs> it's almost like the inverse of like you know, I mean, not to go completely off track, but it's almost like the inverse of how if you leave butter in a fridge for a long time, it picks up whatever odd scents are in there. Absolutely. Interesting. Absolutely. Wow, I didn't. God, I didn't realize people never <laughs> lost their scent. Excuse me. My God, I never realized people didn't lose their scent. That's it's crazy. pretty amazing. It's wow. absolutely pretty amazing. Oh my God, that is so yeah. cool. <laughs> Man, it makes you wonder why. God, it makes you wonder why I haven't seen you guys on more projects, especially down here, because like there's so many controversial yeah. projects that you know where they found burials. Right. Uh, getting oh, our you story out. Did you want? <laughs> getting our story out. Yeah. Has been a uh, a challenge. Oh really? Uh, we're starting to. We've been around since 1997. Wow. And a lot of, you know, archaeology is very scientific. Yeah. And they want to know what the science is behind it. And because most of the the projects that we work on, yeah. they don't want to disturb the burials. They want to know them, that they're there yeah. so that they cannot disturb the yeah. burials. So we didn't get a lot of the science behind it. Uh, about five years ago, four or five years ago, yeah. uh, the Army Corps of Engineers designed a a test for us and this young lady was working on her doctorate yeah and they designed it took on a couple of years to get it set up yeah and she did all the research on the science behind it and then the dogs went out and worked it and the the final conclusion was that you really should use these dogs wow that they should be used on every dod facility where there might be burials so we got, we finally, when, she, when her dissertation came out, she yeah. was published, Ooh. we got some science. And another one just came out from yeah. the uh, Park Service that um, another person had done yeah. down in this area. Interesting. Not to, put a, not to put you on the spot, but do you, there are probably like super long titles, but do you remember any of the titles? I don't remember the titles. Oh, but man, they're always have, like boring We ones. have a website. Ooh. We do have a website. Yeah. And the uh, the first one the Army from the Army Corps is actually, we've got it posted on our, yeah. our homepage. Ooh. So the website is www.icfk9. Yeah. So, oh. .org, k9.org. So, www.icfk9.org. Neat. So, wow. they can get, they can pick up the uh, a copy of that. It's the full PDF copy of the entire study. Ooh. Man, that's really cool. And so, now that we're getting the science, people are, are starting to pay attention. And after the yeah. uh, the expedition we went on for Amelia Earhart last year, people are, they've, they've discovered us. And now, we're pretty busy now, which is great. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> Although she doesn't look so busy right now. No, she's pretty <laughs> settled right now. So <laughs> she's found her spot. Yeah. Unfortunately, this is a podcast, so no one knows what we're talking about. We're talking about yeah. Piper. <laughs> we're talking about my dog Piper, who is laying on the floor, being patient, waiting for me. Man, that's so cool, you're, and she's so friendly. Ready to go. <laughs> if Ooh. I said the word, do you want to go to work? So she glanced over. She did. The eyes are the eyes are looking at me, and the ears are twitching. And she goes, "Where's my job?" 
Neat. <laughs> that's that's what we do as archaeologists when our supervisors do on the work. We're like, did they see the here? Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Neat. Field work, field work, field work. <laughs> oh that's my great. gosh, should I do an outro or anything? No, oh. no, it's alright. Cool. Yeah. Ha, we're good. Okay. Yeah, we're good. yeah, we're good. Well, thank you for letting me speak with you guys. It was been yeah. fun. Yeah, cool. Okay. Ah, well. All right. Thank you. All right, this is Chris Webster with the Archaeology Podcast Network at the Society for California Archaeology Meeting in San Diego, California. And I'm here with Lisa Westwood from ECOR Consulting. How's it going? It's going great. Thank you. How are you doing? Great. Pretty good. Pretty good. Busy, uh, a, a kind of a busy conference, really. There's been a lot of people through here. It's been a great turnout. Yeah. This is Saturday morning, almost afternoon, so the second day of the show. And uh, yeah, there's been a lot of people. Yeah, it's so great. It has. I think it exemplifies the interest that archaeologists have in our profession. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you're with ECOR. You've got a booth right across from us here a little bit. Um, what do you guys do, and what are you telling people about here? Sure. Well, ECOR Consulting is an environmental consulting firm. We are multidisciplinary, which mm -hmm. means that we do a lot of things with respect to environmental compliance. Right. So we do CEQA NEPA. We do biology. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of biologists on staff, <laughs> hydrologists. Yep. Of course, cultural resources professionals. Absolutely. The best department in the whole company, <laughs> of course. The least profitable, but the best department. <laughs> the nicest people and we have the most fun. I can guarantee you that. Right. Exactly. And then we have an amazing GIS program and we're based in Sacramento region in Rockland, okay. but we have offices in Chico, Rockland, Santa Ana, San Diego, Redlands, nice. in Southern California. And then we also have a new office in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Wow. Branching out. We are. There you go. Expanding. New Mexico is kind of hard to break into too. It is, but yeah. I got my graduate degree there. So oh, there you go. It's, it's home to me. You got it in. Nice. I do. All right. Well, uh, before before I move on to something completely off the wall, um, where can people go if they're listening to this to find out more about eCore and to maybe, do you have a jobs posting site or anything? We do. We are okay. recruiting right now for all yeah. levels in all of our offices. We're really busy. Awesome. And people can go to www.ecorpconsulting.com. Okay. okay, perfect. We'll have them check that out. Thank you. So something we talked about before we hit record is some space archaeology. And just as a quick aside, when I was first getting into creating the CRM Archaeology Podcast, I went to the SA meetings in uh, uh, Waikiki, Hawaii, and I interviewed somebody from uh, Alice Gorman from uh, she's a colleague of mine, Australia. Yes, and we talked about space archaeology and her weird thing with zip ties and <laughs> all this stuff. So I'll try to link to that. It's going to be a very early episode of the CRM Archaeology podcast. It was actually a time when I didn't know how to use my recorder either, and I only got like half of her interview because it wasn't on. And uh, so that was great. But tell me about archaeology on the moon. Yes. Oh. And Oh how gosh. you got into that. Oh, okay. So that's a long story. <laughs> um, so in addition to being a professional archaeologist, I'm also on faculty at California State University Chico in Butte College. Nice. And as part of that, I teach students about historic preservation. Mm -hmm. And we oftentimes discuss what makes something significant. Yeah. Is it age? Is it location? Right. What, what is it about it? Is it association? And one of the things that we explored, and this was, you know, this is a conversation that I had with my students 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, does it have to be old in order to be significant? Right. And, of course, the National Register doesn't require that it be necessarily old. There's an exemption for, sure. for more recent properties. But I used the case study of Tranquility Base on the Moon, how that is something that occurred in 1969. It's not old enough yet. It's getting it's, close. It's pretty close. It's getting really close now, <laughs> but at the time it wasn't. And how important that was when Neil Armstrong first stepped mm -hmm. foot on the moon. It's yeah. the equivalent of humans first stepping foot on Earth. 
Absolutely. Through human evolution, right? right. They footprints. Four point something million years old in Eastern Africa. That was a pretty important part of human history. Well, the very first time that humans step foot on another celestial body is incredibly important in human history. Not just Americans, but humankind overall. Right. And so it occurred to me in the middle, I had this epiphany in the middle of class. (laughs) Wow, how come nobody's ever done anything to try to recognize that as an important part of history? And so that's that spurred me into action. And I've spent the last 10 years of my career trying to advocate for historic preservation and was successful in 2009 in getting Tranquility Base on the Moon listed on the California Register of Historical Resources and on the New Mexico Register of Cultural Properties. And in doing so, it became the first time a cultural resource not located on Earth actually was listed on a historical registry. Yeah. And since then, I've obviously joined forces with several of my colleagues, uh, Beth O'Leary from New Mexico and Milford Wayne Donaldson, who is mm. chair of the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation and former California SHPO. Nice. The three of us have been going all over the country advocating for this and, in fact, uh, have been working with members of Congress and the international community, including Alice Gorman, mm-hmm. who is amazing, yeah. in, um, in getting uh, national and international recognition possibly as a World Heritage Site. Right. And uh, just recently I joined forces with um, For All Moonkind, which is a... It's, it, I know. It's a great title. It's, it is a great title. <laughs> and uh, it's a nonprofit organization yeah. that has been formed to try to seek preservation for the Apollo lunar landing sites on the moon. Nice. So I'm on their advisory council. And it's just been wonderful. So kind of fundamental question with all this. Um, you know, space in general, and I, I would imagine the moon, I don't have direct knowledge of this, but I imagine the moon, has, has long been determined since we entered the space race by, by companies or countries that are involved in this to be like international territory, right? Exactly. Like nobody owns it. That's so right. What... What, aside from symbolic, what mm-hmm. actual validity does listing it, even on the National Register of Historic Places for the United States, right. have to the rest of the world? What if somebody else has their own SpaceX and, you know, India is getting up there, China? Mm-hmm. What, if, what if one of these countries decides to land on the moon? And not even a country, a private organization these days. I mean, it's getting real close to that, to That's space right. tourism and things like that. What if, you know, they're going to want to land there. They're going to want to see that. And how do we how do we enforce this on a global scale for the whole entire population of the Earth? What is there even any regulation? Excellent, excellent <laughs> questions. And I hope you have more than five minutes with me because yeah, this we is got all the time. this is just a, this is one of the biggest issues. Now, it is true that the Moon is in fact international territory, so mm-hmm. to speak, or international waters, as a lot of yeah. people call it. However, there is treaty. Mm-hmm. There is international treaty that says that any nation. It's actually called a state when you talk about it in international contexts. Any state that takes property of theirs and deposits it on the moon Mm. owns that it owns those materials in perpetuity. They never give up ownership of that. So while they do not own the surface of the moon or the subsurface of the moon, the United States still owns the 106 objects. There's still a Mm. tranquility base and all of the other Apollo lunar landing sites as well. They own those materials and they have a right to those materials and others don't. Now here's the problem. There are new moon cops. 
you don't have rangers up there. Yeah. And like you said, the first place anybody wants to go if they go to the moon is they're going to go to Tranquility right. Base. They want to see the footprints, right. which, by the way, we think are probably obliterated or you know covered really? with other moon dust. Because I knew they would have lasted a while, but well, not this long. Well, well, what ends up happening is you have an ascent module mm -hmm. from the lunar oh, lander right. that has to go back up, and yeah. it went back up and it carried Neil and Buzz back up into the command module that was that was orbiting. Yeah. And when it does that, the blast of For sure. you know of the upward motion, it's called plume ejecta, yeah. and so it completely and we think probably obliterated the flag yeah. that they planted. It's yeah. probably gone, but we do know that there are 106 objects up there because okay. we know what the astronauts took up there. Mm -hmm. We know what they came back with. Yeah. So, so through grants through NASA, my team was able to determine exactly what's still up there. Okay. Now getting to the point where you, know, you have other countries that are going up there and you have SpaceX and you have all of these competitions like I said there are no moon cops and people mm -hmm. are going to want to go there and they're going to see it but, but I totally want to be a moon cop by the way <laughs> I'd get a badge right uh, moon cop exactly yeah. <laughs> anyway if your day job doesn't work out you know right right right, right exactly I mean archaeologist moon cop they're both pretty obscure absolutely both really cool at Podcaster, cocktail parties right <laughs> but, but so you know the, the issue that is you know how do we preserve that that those sites from yeah. destruction and so uh, a couple of years ago some members of my team were able to contribute to the new NASA guidelines mm -hmm. to, to spacefaring entities and it basically are a set of guidelines that NASA has developed on how far away back should we be staying back mm -hmm. from Tranquility Base and other lunar landing sites to ensure that we're not going to damage them now there's there's no teeth in those guidelines yeah. and so one of the things that we've been doing is part of our outreach to the international community through media, through professional organizations, and even to the parties that are competing for the Lunar X Prize, mm -hmm. is talking about the importance of, of, of historic preservation of these very, very important historical sites and how it's our obligation to actually preserve these before they're damaged. Right. Unlike parks, you know, you go to a park and, you know, a national park and people have long since looted those. Mm -hmm. And then the Park Service comes in and puts up fences and says you can't walk here anymore because yeah. you can't respect them or because it's just the volume of people walking can damage. Right. So what we're trying to do is raise the profile of the importance of historic preservation of the lunar landing sites now before mm. people get there, before they go and damage it. And so through For All Moonkind, we've been working with entities that are competing for mm -hmm. the Lunar X Prize to get them on board with the importance of, you know, making sure that we're not inadvertently damaging a part of history before it's too late. Because mm -hmm. once it's gone, it's gone. Right. There so, you go. There you go. And the, the Tranquility Base site, they did not, correct me if I'm wrong, but they didn't have the uh, the rover on that mission, did they? No, there was so not a no, rover. there's no tracks going out from there? No, there's not. There are no yeah. rovers on Apollo 11. That didn't come until much later in time right. on the later lunar okay. missions. Okay. Uh, but, but some of those rovers are still there For sure. from those later missions. So yeah. you have points on the, Earth, on, on the moon where there are materials that have been left behind and equipment and moon boots and things right. that they didn't need. And that's because weight is extremely important. Mm -hmm. You know, when you have you have a module, you've landed on the moon, you have to get back up to that yeah. command module that's that's orbiting. And everything is based on physics, right? Yeah. And, and they're you taking samples back with They're them. taking samples. So yeah. in order to take samples back, you have to jettison <laughs> stuff you don't need yeah. anymore. Otherwise, you're not getting off the surface. Exactly. So they yeah. created an archaeological toss zone yeah. right before blasting off 
they threw out everything that they don't need. And we have an artifact scatter now at Tranquility Base sure. that has 106 objects in it that nice. were no longer needed. And a lot of those objects are one of a kind. Mm -hmm. They don't exist anywhere else because they were, or maybe they only exist as prototypes on Earth mm -hmm. because the nature of the mission means that you know, you think about the technology in 1969. Right. I mean, you right. know, we, we, everything was moving so fast. They had to develop these pieces of equipment, samples, sticks, and scoops, yeah. and tongs, and all sorts of things. Yeah. For each mission, things were probably changing on how they did it because they would learn and adapt. Exactly. And you have different things. Just like iPhones today. Exactly. How many iPhones have come out in the past two years, three I years? <laughs> I, I just saw a thing. Three more have probably come out this year. I heard that, too. Yeah. It's amazing so. how fast technology moves. I know. It's crazy. Yeah. So, well, that's pretty fascinating, uh, and I'm excited to see where it goes because I do... I mean, I would love the National Park Service to put up a, a brown fence around Tranquility Base, but I don't think it's going to work. I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, because you, you have to... You brought up some other things because when we... When we have vehicles going up there, um, depending on how they land, which is probably going to be some sort of vertical descent, right. um, because they're not going to land. There's no runways. Nope. So, and and there's no, you know, we're, we're not totally in the future where they're just going to put their landing gear down and come and land right next to it. So they're going to kick up dust. They are. So they need to have a distance that they can land. Not only a distance around the site that they can just peer in and see, mm -hmm. but a distance that they have to land and then walk to. And exactly. then when they walk to it, I mean, those footprints, that path, all that mm -hmm. stuff is going to be there for a really long time, so it's going to have a massive impact on that just the area. It's such a good point, and, and yeah. that's why the NASA guidelines were put into place, right. was to help determine what that distance is, and right. I think the concern that I have over these private endeavors that are going back is that they're not sending humans back right away. Right. You don't have a human there to be able to say, oh gosh, maybe I shouldn't be stepping all over these artifacts. Right. What you have is you have a robotic vehicle that's being controlled remotely yeah. from somebody on Earth 250,000 miles away. Right. So how do you ensure that that person operating the joystick is not going to take that little piece of robotic equipment and run over and crush right. all of the artifacts that are up there that sure. are so important to human history? I would just love to see Elon Musk step out of his spaceship in, uh, in a suit and have a park ranger in a green spacesuit standing there going, welcome to Tranquility Base. I'd volunteer for that role. <laughs> standing next to a moon cop, obviously. That's right, which yeah. would be you. Which would be me. That's right. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, Lisa. That was fascinating. And Thank you. Uh, again, one more time, where can people go to find out more about ECORP? They can go to www.ecorpconsulting.com. And is there any place they can go on the web to find out more about uh, the, the moon stuff? What was that called? For all moonkind. <laughs> for all moonkind. Yes. No, we have some links on our corporate web website for okay. some of my press releases for some of the books that I've just published okay. through University Press of Florida. Excellent. Yes. So we'll check that out. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high quality downloads of each show and a discount at our online store and access to show hosts on a members only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. 
This is Chris Webster with the Archaeology Podcast Network. I'm here on the final day of the Society for California Archaeology meeting, and I'm sitting with past president of the SAA, Paul Chase, with the Presidio Heritage Trust of San Diego. Paul, how's it going? Good morning. It's going fine. It's been a busy conference. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, it's been really good here in the exhibit hall. It's been just a ton of people coming through, so that's great. So tell us about the Presidio Heritage Trust. What is the Presidio of San Diego? What's the significance of this thing? Uh, 249 and a half years ago, the first European settlement was established here. It was the Spanish Royal Presidio mm -hmm. established, uh, and this was the first European settlement on the West Coast mm -hmm. in Kumeyaay Indian Territory here. Uh, two years ago, the uh, several of us formed the Presidio Heritage Trust. One, to uh, enhance our understandings and the heritage of the Presidio itself, its history, its archaeology, mm -hmm. what we know about it. Celebrate that. And then next year, we hope to uh, have grand international celebrations with people coming from all over the world. Mm -hmm. The Presidio was an international founding between Spain and the sovereign Kumeyaay Indian nation. It was successful. Uh, there were a lot of problems, mm -hmm. and they solved some of them, and out of all of that, San Diego grew. Now our job is to celebrate that and commemorate it. And it's both a uh, big success story. San Diego is a marvelous mm -hmm. metropolis. It's also a story that is full of crazy, marvelous stories, good and bad. Yeah. Okay. And the, a lot of the bad ones have been left out. Yeah, of course they have, yeah. Uh, real quick to back up, uh, because we do have somewhat of a global audience for this podcast. Um, define Presidio as it's used out here. It, it sounds like it's kind of like a fort, right? Um, exactly. Yeah. So it would have been a central place for almost like a military garrison to establish, right? It was a military garrison. Yeah. The uh, Spanish effort to colonize California, mm -hmm. all of California, uh, had 20-some uh, missions established ultimately and four presidios, mm -hmm. military garrisons, to protect uh, this California, early California, Spanish California, from foreign invasion. They yeah. were particularly concerned that the Russians were establishing Fort Ross and uh, coming down the uh, Pacific coast. Right. And they needed the military also to, us to keep peace uh, because the natives in California uh, they thought they owned this land. <laughs> and the Spanish, under uh, dictums from Rome, mm -hmm. believed that they were in charge. Yeah. And so the military garrisons were important to try to maintain peace and civility by, for the Spanish frontier, mm -hmm. but for, in the international world of the Pacific Coast, uh, colonization. Uh, so the garrisons were yeah. important. Yeah. How long was the Presidio in use? Uh, the Presidio here at San Diego was the first one, mm -hmm. and it lasted for 65 years. Wow. And then in the 1830s, it was essentially uh, abandoned. Mm -hmm. uh, the soldiers more or less retired and went to live in the Pueblos or on their own Rancho Grant lands. Okay. So after that, San Diego was formed. San Diego was already formed as a city by the time that the Presidio was basically retired, and there was no need for it anymore. Is that the thought? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The government no longer funded the uh, garrison. Okay. And so it melted. Right. In fact, as people moved to Old Town San Diego down at the base of the hill mm -hmm. on the flatland, uh, established gardens and houses, mm -hmm. uh, San Diego began as a residential pueblo. Mm -hmm. uh, the soldiers retired, but 
uh, in doing that, they often took the tile roofs <laughs> right off the old buildings yeah. and used them on the new buildings. So it was uh, a matter of they helped take the roof, and that caused the adobe's walls to be open to the rain and melted. Yep. So what we have now, after 250 years, are uh, about three foot tall wall stubs mm-hmm. up in the park to mark all of the buildings that were the CDO, the fort. All right. So in all this time, I mean, as, as cities grow and populations grow, uh, the Presidio basically stood on those grounds and nobody nobody built inside the grounds or on top of it? or, or? Exactly right. Yeah. Most important point. Uh, there were three other Presidios, San Francisco, Monterey, Santa Barbara. Right. All of those became uh, urbanized and rebuilt on. And so we have only uh, sections of them. Mm. Most of them have been lost to, to new modern buildings. Right. San Diego is special. The entire Presidio, which was about the size of two football fields in yeah. a square with corner bastions with cannons. Mm-hmm. It's all preserved. Wow. It turns out that it was going to be developed uh, as city land in about 1900. Uh, George Marston bought it all, mm. recognized it was important, and created a park. And finally, after 40 years, was successful in transferring title to the city of San Diego of this his park mm. with the Presidio ruins. Right. Okay. So That's it's great. been preserved. Yeah. And this, the entire thing is an archaeological preserve. Right. Have there been many uh, excavations or anything uh, and a lot of research at the Presidio, I'm sure, right? Yes and no. Yeah. <laughs> For 50 years, uh, a number of different good archaeologists have excavated there. Yeah. And so there's huge collections that have been assembled. Um, however, there's never been a book written on all of their work. Wow. There's been one dissertation, there's been five theses, and some articles, right. but never a book. Wow. Therefore, the Presidio story, which should be a multicultural story, because the Spanish were in charge of building it with their engineers and soldiers, mm-hmm. and they used the Indians as laborers as well. But the Indians were one of the major populations in Presidio. Mm-hmm. And then we have all these international visitors, and the soldiers were going out and doing things and coming back. So there's multiple stories about activities in the garrison. Yeah. Um, there were marriages, um, funerals. There's a, there's a chapel or church there. That's where the first mission was started, but mm-hmm. it moved out after three years. Right. But the cemetery was respected clear into the 1870s. This wow. was San Diego's most sacred first cemetery land. Mm-hmm. So it's still important. Absolutely. Okay, and how did you become interested in this in the Presidio and and uh, and really get into this? <sighs> <laughs> Seventeen years ago, ah. I've been an archaeologist for a career, uh, so I've done fifty years of archaeology in California. Mm-hmm. The uh, the city got into a fight with itself, largely. Mm-hmm. Uh, decided that they were going to close out the archaeology that had been going on and try to preserve everything. Yeah. Preservation as a policy became paramount. So they closed the archaeology that had been going on, uh, railroaded the archaeologist out of town, and then demanded that all the collections that he had assembled from his and other older projects all be handed back to the city. Wow. So they ended up with a 
huge basement full of archaeological specimens Jeez. and formed, gee, we have no archaeologists on staff. So they formed a, the mayor formed a advisory committee. And I was selected to uh, help advise the city 17 years ago. Mm -hmm. The collection has remained locked in the basement for 17 years. Wow. And I have cried a little bit. <laughs> and so that's how it started. Uh, over these 17 years, mm -hmm. I have been uh, doing various efforts, uh, promote to research, uh, to tell the stories of the archaeology and try to learn the history. Mm -hmm. And so two years ago, we formed the Presidio Heritage Trust to do specifically that because the city wasn't. Yeah. So we're a private uh, 501c3 organization with great flexibility. We can do whatever we imagine. There you I go. like that. <laughs> so next year, for the 250th anniversary of the founding, we would like to see an international party bringing people from Spain, from Mexico, and people from all over the world came to visit the Presidio. So the mm -hmm. Russians were here twice with uh, uh, sailing ships. Mm -hmm. Etc. Etc. So uh, it should be an international, for sure. Site. It should be an international party. And San Diego is a nice city, but they don't think of this world-class landmark. Right. It should be a tourist destination spot. Ah, oh, remember too. In 1827, it became California's actual capital. Right. Right at the city. It Presidio again there. should become that kind of attraction for San yeah. Diego. They should promote it. They haven't, so we're going to do it. We're going to go. promote. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll try to help with that. Uh, we're going to have... This is just a, a short interview for the conference here, but we're planning on bringing on uh, Paul Chase again for one of our shows, for probably the Archaeology Show. You're listening to this on the Sierra Archaeology Podcast, but we're going to bring him up on the Archaeology Show, arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeology, and that's going to be in an upcoming episode in the next... Uh, it'll probably release in the next couple months from when you're listening to this, so uh, check that out for sure, and then uh, check out this show. We'll have some notes in here for, so you can go check out the Presidio of San Diego. And, uh, Paul, is there any place that people can go right now to find out more about the Presidio Heritage Trust or the Presidio San Diego? Is there any place on the web that's been set up yet where people can go find out more information? Yes. Yeah. Uh, we've set up website. Uh, the reference is right here okay. in our monthly newsletter that we also uh, produce with the multicultural stories all about the Presidio and all of its people. Okay. Uh, people can subscribe to our newsletter. They can visit the website. Uh, you have the uh, yeah. reference right there. I'll put stuff in the show notes, um, San Diego presidio.com and then they also have a facebook page sd presidio and they are on twitter at sd underscore presidio so check all that out but this will of course will be in the show notes so you can go check that out so thanks a lot paul we'll get back to the noisy exhibit hall here and uh enjoy the rest of your day thank you appreciate the opportunity thank you the archaeology podcast network has partnered with t public to bring you some awesome gear that looks good promotes archaeology, and puts a few pennies in our pockets so you can get free podcasts. Check out our designs at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop. This is Chris Webster with the Archaeology Podcast Network at the Society for California Archaeology Meetings in the noisy exhibit hall at the APN booth, and I'm talking with Vicki Morgan of the Harrison Serenity Ranch. Vicki, how's it going? Oh, it's fantastic. Great. I'm fantastic. So, so tell us, uh, you're
you're not an archaeologist, but you're here at the conference. <laughs> but tell us, tell us a little about what is the Harrison Serenity Ranch. We're down here in San Diego. It's nearby. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us what that is. What's the history behind it? Okay, the history behind Harrison Serenity Ranch. Um, I purchased this piece of property, uh, and it is the old Nate Harrison site. And Nate Harrison uh, is a freed slave, and he's the first black man to own a piece of property in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And he actually coexisted with the Indians on top of Palomar Mountain. Yeah. Was he a, a slave back east and then came here? Yes, he okay. came from Kentucky. That's okay. new information from Professor Seth Malios, uh, nice. who is from San Diego State and who is uh, leading up this archaeological dig since 2004. Right. Okay. So you purchased this property and you were like, oh, that looks like a nice place. And then you found out about all this history and this I was, ongoing I, work. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely fun. It's It's been so exciting. Yes, I purchased this piece of property to open up a retreat center. Yeah. And upon learning about the historic, historical aspect of the property, it became even more exciting. Um, okay. I'm an African drummer. White girl goes African drumming. Love it. And, yeah, and, yeah. And I do a lot of work with uh, the Indians and Native American people also, mm-hmm. and this is uh, indigenous property. And I think that that has been the beauty of this land is yeah. knowing um, that Nate Harrison coexisted so harmoniously with the Indians, and they gave him the property. Wow. And he was such an... Uh, he had a business sense to him, and so he ended up yeah. homesteading the land. Okay. And so he, like I said, was the first black man to own a piece of property in San Diego, and the first nice. non-Indian on the mountain. But he probably had a, I mean, they had a common uh, common shared history a little bit of uh, dealing with other people, didn't they? Yeah, yes, so, they did. Yeah. And they, that was, I believe, the safe zone. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, a neighbor of mine uh, sent an old map of the trail leading up to the property. Right. And it was uh, it was named Tokoma, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure the meaning of that just as of yet. This is new information for me. Yeah. But it is the only known piece of property that had this offshoot uh, to lead the Indians to that piece of property because okay. it is full of plant medicine. It's full of water. You know, we have amazing water there right on the property right. and the, the wildlife. And so it is a preserve, nice. and we've been um, yeah preserving and preserving that beautiful environment. It's it's just gorgeous. Well, I'd like to say, first off, I'm, an, I'm a CRM archaeologist, and it's great to see a private landowner taking such a, uh, an amazing responsibility on Because you didn't have to do that. No. You could have bought the property and put up a Walmart. I mean, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't you know, matter. It's private and, land. But it, for me, it was so important to share that history. Absolutely. As, because we are so divided. Right. You know, in our country, we are absolutely divided. And, you know, as I've worked with the, the Native American people, they've been such amazing teachers about how we're supposed to be healing and coming together. Yeah. So this piece of property for me represented that. Nice. You have the Indian heritage, you have the black history, you know, you have little white girl, you know, who does a lot of community work <laughs> and just bringing it all together, you know, yeah. and doing what we can to preserve it. And, you know, my, my goal is to put it in a trust and mm-hmm. preserve the land, create a museum up there for the public. For and sure. yeah, section off that, that area of the Nate Harrison site okay. and open it up to the public. Um, um, everything's been on the hush-hush lowdown as the professor's been doing this active dig. For and sure. Yeah, it's it's actually been exciting. They nice. have actually uh, found over 32,000 artifacts from that particular site. Wow. That's being stored at San Diego State. Wow. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. Um, I, I'm wondering, is it listed on the state or national register of historic places yet? Not yet. Is that in work? 
Yeah, yeah. You got to build the case for it. Got to build the case. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's, it is uh, built. It's a process. Yeah. It is built yeah. at this point, I believe. Nice. Yeah. Well, I mean, just the the whole idea of it being the first um, African American to own property. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, that alone is a significant fact, yeah. and the fact that we know where that's at and all the stuff. I mean, even if you had no artifacts, exactly. That still sounds, you know, like a pretty solid case. Yes, yes. So. They've uh, they've done amazing work up there. So right. there's still the foundation of his home. Oh wow! And nice. it is the only known slave housing this side of the Mississippi. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now, are you still planning on having the retreat up there? Yes, we have been. We have been. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. yes. So that that's still a thing. It's just you sectioned off this property. Exactly. It's yeah. 67. We have 67 acres. Oh, that's so a good old that, amount of yeah, space. Yeah. So that <laughs> the Nate Harrison site is a designated spot, and it's yeah. towards kind of near the entrance of the property. And then I have my yeah. space down below. How many acres does his area take up? Just out of curiosity, just a few. Yeah. 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 A couple yeah. acres. Is that the original side, or did he have a much bigger property? Uh, he had a hundred and something acres. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so originally, yes. And yeah. so my neighbors have the upper half of it, gotcha. and, and we we share the water rights of the property. Right. Yes. Do you know if there's? I mean, I, I know archaeological sites from the Great Basin and ranching and things like that. Sometimes there's outbuildings and other stuff. Are there any other associated buildings even on your neighbor's property that you're aware of? We did find the area where he did his tanning. Okay. So that was hidden underneath the bushes. Nice. And so we yeah. did discover that. Um, uh, we are going to be uh, focusing on a new site on the property, which I won't disclose at this point. For sure. And uh, we'll so wait for the book. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be back up in a couple of weeks to nice. continue the dig. Yeah. Nice. Well, that's awesome. And and I can edit this out if you're not ready to say it. Uh, you mentioned before we started recording uh, a book coming out later on in the future uh, by <laughs> Professor Seth Malios of San Diego State. Okay, and that's planned for about what time frame? We will be presenting this book. It has to be ready by 2020. Okay. And why I say that, we are going to be doing an amazing celebration of Nate's life in 2020, wow. and that it will be the hundred years of his death. Wow, he, fantastic. Yeah, he passed in 1920. Okay. Wow, he lived a long life out there. Long didn't he? life. Yeah. Yeah, he was happy on the mountain. Excellent. Yeah. Are any of his descendants in the area? That's been a topic of research and conversation, okay. and we believe he had a stepdaughter. Mm -hmm. He married an, uh, an Indian woman, and she had a daughter. Okay. And so they, right now, are trying to really dig up any information on any type of relative. No, no pun intended, dig up information. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I had to say it. We're at an archaeology conference. We are. Yeah. We are. <laughs> All right. Well, Vicki Morgan, thank you very much. And is there any outlet on the internet right now where people can go to find out more about this? Absolutely. Harrison Serenity Ranch or uh, look up the Nate Harrison story through San Diego State. It's okay. listed on their website also. We'll have people do that. All right. All thanks right. very much. Thank you very much. This is Chris Webster with the Archaeology Podcast Network at the Society for California Archaeology Meetings in San Diego 2018, and I'm with Tom Whitley with Sonoma State University. Welcome, Tom. Hey, thanks, Chris. Yeah, tell us, you guys have a booth just a couple down from us here. Tell us all about the uh, the program that you're promoting here at Sonoma okay. State. Uh, yeah, Sonoma State University is one of the oldest, possibly the oldest, um, 
university-affiliated cultural resource management firm, and we also um, are part of the Masters of Cultural Resource Management at Sonoma State University. So we've been around at the Anthropological Studies Center. We've been around since 1974, and the master's program has been around since the early 80s. But, uh, you know, this is a this is when there was essentially no competition for universities teaching uh, cultural resource management to students. And so um, our director, Adrian Pretzelis, retired um, the year before last, and mm-hmm. I took his place. Mm-hmm. And so I was teaching um, in the Masters of Cultural Resource Management um, or uh, Professional Archaeology at the University of Western Australia for the last three years right. before that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, our goal is to, at the ASC, we provide internships and opportunities for students to go out in the field, learn how to do small projects, and get experience doing them um, on the way to completing their master's mm-hmm. degree. So, interesting note for anybody listening to this, if you go to arcpodnet.com forward slash podcast, and on the right side, you type in the search bar, Sonoma, mm-hmm. uh, Adrian Pretzels' interview will come up, where we interviewed him about this program a few years yeah. ago. And then, also, uh, Tom Whitley, we interviewed you, so if you type in right. Australia, that interview will show up. Right. So, uh, so, I'm sure Adrian was much more coherent <laughs> in his <laughs> description of the program than I am. Nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah, no, honestly, uh, from what I know of the Sonoma State program, uh, first off, I wish I'd gone there. Yeah. And second, anybody that tells me, I get a lot of questions all the time asking about grad school programs, and we right. talk about a lot. And I say, if you are either in California or can go to California or can do something there, uh, check out Sonoma State. Yeah, it's a great program. And you know, we've been we've been teaching it for a long time, so we we have a, a huge um, graduate. Uh, employment rate so mm-hmm. most of our graduates are employed um, throughout California and other parts of the country working for private sector firms agencies um, mm-hmm. various CRM related jobs um, nowadays you know we're getting um, CRM is is evolving and starting mm-hmm. to deal with things like intangible resources language and that sort of thing so we're trying to uh, revise the program a little bit to start incorporating some of these things like um, virtual reality and mm-hmm. um, 3d modeling and we have a um, uh, nice. remote sensing you know all these kinds of t- um, skills that right. are necessary for students moving into the job market so right. that's one of our key focuses right now and that's really great because what you're creating are managers because they're in the graduate right. program so they're right. managers and you know a good manager doesn't necessarily need to do all the things but they should know how to do all the things and they should right. know what's right. available so they know who to contact in a certain way you know you don't want to contact six different specialists when you only need right. one right. and blow the project budget on stuff you shouldn't have been doing yeah yeah <laughs> and you know being being in culture resource management is is a lot about putting on a lot of different hats. You know, right. you're always as a project manager, you take on projects that may be in an area that you've never actually worked in before, or right. something related. You find a site that has something that you've never worked on before, and you have to be able to adapt to that. Right. And uh, you have to understand the legislation. You have to understand who your clients are. You have to understand how to manage projects, how to how to manage people. Yeah. manage budgets and um, 
you know, when you're when you're learning specialty skills like you know my specialty is GIS and, and advanced spatial analysis, you know that's an important skill to have um, to help you stay employed mm-hmm. because uh, a lot of the technological skills, you know, you may not be doing them all the time, but uh, those are the things that are going to get you a good a good job somewhere and to stay in that job for right. a long time. Right. Exactly. So. All right. Well, this is a pretty short interview, but I just want to finish by saying, you know, you guys are here. It's March of 2018. If somebody's listening to this in real time and not four years from now, is there still time to get in for the fall for the program? Um, No, we just closed our applications. So we've uh, taken our applications and um, chosen the admitted students. So we, I think we have to the beginning of April Mm -hmm. um, in order to uh, apply or people have already applied, but beginning of April to accept. Yeah. And um, after that, uh, you know, every year um, by around January, January, February, you can start applying to the program. Okay. Yep. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks, Tom. And again, that was Sonoma State University. Check it out. Go to arcpodnet.com forward slash CRMR podcast. Type in Sonoma. Listen to the full interview about the program, which I'm sure a lot of that information is still valid about the program from a couple years ago. So definitely check that out. And uh, thanks a lot. Thanks. Okay, this is Chris Webster from the Archaeology Podcast Network at the Society for California Archaeology meeting in San Diego 2018 in the Noisy Exhibit Hall in our booth. And next to our booth, we have the... I'm pointing as though people can see me. Next to our booth, we have the WildNote booth, of which, full disclosure, I am now running sales for CRM for WildNote. However, to kind of baby step me through this process, (laughs) we have uh, Brandon Jones and Nancy Douglas here. And I've got Brandon Jones on the line. Brandon, how's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. You're right about it being noisy in here, so I hope the background noise isn't too much. It adds that sort of ambiance that we're all looking ah, for from a conference, nice. right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You want people, that's for that's sure. Right. That's right. We want it to sound busy because, yeah. you know, we're, we're selling stuff here. So, um, But first, you're, you're working with WildNote. Tell us a little bit, uh, give us the elevator pitch for what WildNote is and what it can do for CRM. All right. Well, basically, WildNote is a digital platform for collecting, managing, and reporting environmental data. And the bottom line is, it's about time. It's yeah. about how much time you save. It's about how much money you save. Because if you're still using uh, pen and paper or what I call a mishmash of technologies from the 1990s, you're inefficient. It's just yeah. not not going to be the most productive way to go. Right. All right. So you told us about what WildNote is. Um, what can what, what what is your guys' background in this field? What have you been doing before you decided to do CRM archaeology? You're not just like an, an upstart that came into archaeology to do this. What's your background in this? Well, actually, the background with WildNote starts all the way back around 2011 when Kristen, our founder, Kristen Hazard, our founder, um, was a principal in an environmental consulting firm, mm-hmm. and she was also a programmer. And she learned her programming skills in Silicon Valley and. PG&E at that time approached her about creating an environmental data collection app. Right. So she did. And she saw back then how um, functional it was and how much time it saved PG&E. And PG&E loved it. And by the way, PG&E is still using the app today. Nice. She decided to go out and build one for the environmental services community without um, using the PG&E app because it was proprietary. Right. So she spent three years building the app, uh, which brings us all the way up to around uh, 
2016, and mm -hmm. we beta tested the app for about eight months, getting feedback from customers, trying to find out exactly what it was they needed, what they wanted, what would actually work for them, rather than right. telling them, here, this is going to work for you, it's, we went the other way, which is, a, I think, a good way to go in the end. Right. Bottom line is, a year ago, last January, we uh, went live with the product, and for a year now, we've been out there collecting customers, and it seems to be working out pretty well for our client base. Mm -hmm. Now, in the interim, we met you at the APN, and yeah. you introduced us to this whole vertical of cultural resource management. That, we believe, is a, a, a ripe uh, market for this type of technology because sure. it saves so much time and hassle, stress, everything. Right. So that's how we got from there to here. Gotcha. Okay. Well, this is a pretty short interview because we have booths to run. So just tell everybody where they can find out more about WildNote. Well, if you want to know more, you can go to www.wildnoteapp.com and check it out there. There you go. And you can sign up for a free trial. Yes, you can. So, we, we, yeah. have, we offer free trials. So go ahead and check it out. You're going you're gonna to like it. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Brandon, from WildNote. And this is Chris Webster with the Archaeology Podcast Network. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.